So let's take out our Bibles today. And I'll go ahead and tell you, this is going to be probably a lot more um, traditional type sermon stuff, if you're interested in that. As you know, I probably am not considered a traditional type preacher. But this is, for one fact and one fact only, we really need to understand this information that I'm giving to you. So it is going to be me giving you some information. We're dealing with it in three separate uh, areas. And then I'm also going to wrap up our findings at the end and give you an application for why it matters, okay? Also, we have a new clock in the back. So we're all, yeah, everybody's like, praise. You know, that was probably the biggest prayer request you had this past week. Please get a clock in this place. <clears throat> so we're going to try to be efficient with our time, okay? I appreciate it. What's that? Now I know when I'm sinning, the hands do not lie, right? That's good. It's good. And I tell you what, I don't want to be redundant with this, but I do feel like that we need to maybe pray one more time before we dive into this. Let's do that if you don't mind, please. Father, I pray that you would please bless our time in the Word. Father, what we're going to look at today may challenge a lot of what we think or, or how we've understood some things. We may be walking away from this at the end wondering why in the world does it matter. So we need the Holy Spirit to add it to our hearts and our minds uh, to bring the supreme relevance of it to our thinking. Uh, our relevance of it to our thinking. Help us, Father, to uh, uh, navigate through these waters and to understand uh, a little bit more clearly about what we talk about. We talk about the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to pick up where we left off at last time. In Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be looking first at verses 18 through 23. And the reason why we're going to be looking at this is because this is the interpretation of the Sermon on the or not the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the sower. Can everybody tell I'm not totally with it this week? gravy. And I'm just going to go ahead and blame Zach. I mean, this is first week. Yeah. I mean, let's just go ahead and beat him senseless and then eventually I'll go back to Tom. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's been good. It's just been a, a busy week. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I'm nervous about this. Uh, I hope this doesn't seem boring to you, but I promise if you stay engaged with me, it won't be. So chapter 13 of Matthew, look at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears, and if you need to underline anything today, here it is. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Whenever you're dealing with a parable, we know that the word of God is true and without error. We have everything internally, that testifies to this truth. So it's already raising the bar pretty high for itself. But any discoveries that we have had, especially in the realm of archaeology outside of the Bible, have done nothing but verify the Bible over and over. So if we're going to deal with how do we get to what this means, and what does it mean to be talking about the word of the kingdom, we know that God's word is not the problem. The problem, and forgive me for using this word, is a hermeneutical problem, right? It's a problem of interpretation. How are we handling this? And so there are three points that I want us to hit on and maybe take a moment to look at. The number one is the contemporary understanding of the kingdom. What are people saying about it now? What are people who are considered respected leaders in the church, how are they viewing this concept and what are they actively teaching? Number two, the nature of the kingdom in the Gospels. Now, we're not going to be able to cover it exhaustively, but what are, what are some things going on about the kingdom in the other Gospels that we see? We've been in Matthew, but what does Mark and Luke have to say about it as well? The last one, the nature of the kingdom in the church age. What does the teaching of the kingdom look like beyond the Gospels, beyond 
the resurrection of Christ. That would be important for us because right now, as a body of believers, we are in the dispensation known as the church age. We're in an extremely unique period of time. We have an extremely unique responsibility that no one else has been given in all of history. And we have every reason and everything equipped to us to be responsible in executing that responsibility. So here's what I want us to see. First, if you want to look here on your paper, you can. We've also got them up on the screen. But I want to look through some quotes that people have given as far as what we know about the kingdom. And this would probably be considered modern evangelical conversations about the kingdom. The first one is from a man named Timothy Keller, who pastored a church, uh, Redeemer Church in New York City, was considered a very viable force as far as social justice, helping the poor, those types of things were going on. And he has some comments that he wants to say regarding the kingdom. To spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also working for the healing of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It is ordering lives and relationships and institutions. Where am I at in my notes? Here we are. Uh, Communities, according to God's authority, to bring in the blessedness of the kingdom. Is that what we've seen in Matthew in the Old Testament? Doesn't seem like it, does it? It doesn't so far. Now, if you're saying, okay, good grief, what have you guys been studying before in order to lead up to this point? Well, if you notice, this is number 53. So you have 52 sermons to listen to before this in order to get with us to this point. Now, you can do it. I actually have somebody in the church that's, that's listened to everything three times at least each lesson. I know, they're super going to heaven, aren't they? It's amazing. <laughs> So (laughs) that's how we know. You must be saved. There's no other answer for that one. But here's the thing. What Keller is promoting here is what's known as post-millennialism. And it's the idea that the world has got to get better and better, that we have to Christianize society as it is, and when the world gets good enough to a point, then Jesus will return. Does that sound right? Is the world getting better? Oh, okay. So just from experience, we're going, right? That's what we're dealing with. Now, here's an interesting quote, this next one. This is by Brian McLaren. Has anybody ever heard of Brian McLaren? Brian McLaren is considered the leading voice in the emerging church movement. Now, 10, 15 years ago, the emerging church was all the rage. The problem is, is when you asked them what they believed about something, they would always turn around and answer you with the question and never answer the question you gave. They'd be like, well, what do you believe about the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ? Well, that really might not be the, the question now, is it? Answer the question, man, right? I just want to know. So they've had foggy theology. They run a lot on the idea of let's have community together and let's all get along. And they're also very heavily involved in the idea of what is called today social justice, okay? Here's what he says. He selected 12 and trained them in a new way of life. He sent them to teach everyone this way of life. Some would believe and become practitioners and teachers of this new way of life too. Even if only a few would practice this new way, many would benefit. Oppressed people would be free. Poor people would be liberated from poverty. Minorities would be treated with respect. Sinners would be loved, not resented. Here's an interesting quote. Industrialists would realize that God cares for sparrows and wildflowers. So their industry should respect, not rape, the environment. The homeless would be invited in for a hot meal. The kingdom of God would come, not everywhere at once, not suddenly, but gradually, like a seed growing in a field, like yeast spreading in a lump of bread dough, like light spreading across the sky at dawn. Does anybody get Bob Ross happy trees kind of feeling from this explanation the poor would be liberated from poverty doesn't jesus say you'll have the poor with you always okay so that's a problem in fact when jesus talks about how the end is going to come about doesn't he say like lightning flashing from the east is to the west or for it's like lightning in the sky is going to be the return of the son of man notice what he says no it's just gradually pouring on it's not what jesus says So we can't conclude that he has a proper view. Do you see also how he is looking? If we can just change society and make society better, this is what's going to usher in the kingdom. 
This is the fault of us laying our hands on the kingdom and thinking somehow we are the ones who are building it or introducing it into existence. It's never pictured that way. Now, here's the next one. This person who makes this quote, I actually love him to death. He's a great scholar. He's a fantastic scholar. But he's making a comment about another group of people and their view about it. And that view is known as the progressive dispensational view. What progressive dispensationalism does is it takes the clearly defined distinctions between the church and Israel, and it wants to try to blur that line as much as possible to squeeze the two together so somehow everybody can get along. That's what the view is. So he gives a little bit of an example of this. Uh, Let's see here. Progressive dispensationalists believe the kingdom was present when Christ ministered on earth but his reign was not initiated until his ascension. At that time, he took his seat on the throne of David. Thus, the kingdom has been inaugurated, but will only come in its fullness in the millennium and eternity. The terms already, not yet, punctuate their discussion. Did the kingdom come whenever Jesus was on earth? See, we're scared to answer that one, are we? Because we're not really for sure. No, it didn't. But was he offering it? That was the whole offer, wasn't it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And was it for a specified group of people? It was. It was for the Jews. Remember, do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to Samaria. Even those who are half Jew and half Gentile. Go only to the lost sheep, to the house of Israel. So this idea that the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet here, it's a popular one, but that doesn't mean that it's a right one. Notice also that they say that whenever Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and that is the throne of David. Is that true? Where is David's throne? It's in Jerusalem. Isn't that where David sat and reigned? So notice it's not hard, but what is the issue here? It's an interpretation problem. Everybody see this? Now this is starting to get really, really popular. In fact, my very last class that I ever took at at, uh, Liberty for my uh, MDiv degree, they were pushing this to the hilt. And I actually wrote some things in my paper, because I have to be the thorn in everybody's side, about why this was not a good way to go. It's dangerous stuff. Because all of a sudden it becomes about how I think it's going to work instead of simply just letting the text speak for itself. Someone else who advocates the idea of already not yet is a man named David Platt. He's extremely popular. Some of you, actually, it's sold into so many copies, some of you probably haven't. His book, Radical. Anybody have that book, Radical? You look in there and you'll actually find that he advocates that if you don't have a desire to care for the poor, you might want to check whether or not you're really saved. That's his viewpoint. Is the idea of whatever your heart's desires are will determine whether or not you really know the Lord Jesus. Scary place. I don't know about you, but my heart's all over the place. If that's the case, I'm all kinds of different things. Scary stuff. But here's what he says. There's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. The king is here and his kingdom is advancing. That's what we've been reading in Matthew. God's rule and reign over disease and disasters and death is being asserted redemptively through Christ. There's also a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is still a future realization. Everybody see the already not yet idea there? Notice what it says, the redemptive reign of God in Christ is infiltrating the world now, but his kingdom will not be consummated until later when Jesus returns. We are in a sense living between the times. In fact, if you press him a little bit further and you deal with Jesus's specific teaching on the parable of the sower and you get in there and you can see this in your notes, I don't think we have it up here, but here's what he says, that message is a message of salvation. The good news of the kingdom that God will save and redeem sinners through Christ. Pause. Is that what we've seen as the message of the kingdom? No, it's not. The message of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom is not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ our Lord alone. That's not the message. The message is repent because he's coming. And when he comes, he's going to set up his kingdom. That's the idea. The idea is apocalyptic. Or to get real frisky with your Scrabble words, it's eschatological. It's got the end in mind, is the idea. 
It is all the culmination of history. It is when everything is finally done and we can rest and relax and say, thank you, Jesus, for taking care of all this sin. Gosh, that was a mess. That's what we're dealing with. The problem is, is that when you interpret things like the parable of the sower and you decide that you're going to slap the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ on top of it, you end up with the works salvation. Well, how do we know that? Well, here's the reason why. Because when persecution and affliction came in one of the soils, didn't they fall away? Must not really been saved then, were they? Everybody see how that works? Well, how about the time whenever it seemed like that the worries of the world, do the worries of the world ever get to you? Yeah? And it likened it to thorns choking? How about the deceitfulness of money? Anybody been deceit, deceit, deceited? Deceived, thank you. I was deceived about the proper wordage of that word. Phrase it, I don't know, whatever. Have any of us ever been deceived by money? Yeah, it's called Visa. It's called MasterCard. It's called American Express. We have been deceived. And when that happens, they fell away too. They were unfruitful. See, they weren't really saved. Is that the case? Because I think, I think if I said right now, okay, if that's the case, all the unsaved people over here and all the saved people over here, we would topple this building into the lake. That's how much weight there would be because we would all be disqualified because salvation becomes about our actions, not about the one who did all the work for us. Everybody see that? So it's dangerous to interpret it this way, and this is why we need to look at it. The question is, is whether Jesus' works were sufficient or not, and if... The parable of sower is what he's truly talking about. If you want to turn over to page four, they're not numbered, but you can follow along with me. It's fine. When you have this idea of work salvation, you conclude two things based on people's performances. And it's usually the person that's letting you know whether you're saved or not, whether you're saved, which then you want to turn around and ask them how they know whether or not they're saved. But that's not the issue, right? It's just you. So either, either you forfeited your salvation somewhere or you were never really truly saved they both into the same place, and that's the lake of fire, which for the genuine Christian is doubt, no confidence, and wondering why Jesus didn't do enough to truly save us. Everybody see how dangerous this is. Okay, scary stuff. So here's a question. What is the nature of the kingdom in the Gospels? Anytime that you interpret anything, context matters. Would you agree? Yes. Context always matters. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark 1. And I want to show you something that is often mistranslated. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If we would just pay attention to the context sometimes and slow down when we get into the text, we'd be amazed and what the Bible tells us about itself. Look what it says in chapter 1 of Mark, verses 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now that's a pretty ambiguous phrase, yes? Okay, so let's read on and see if anything unfolds for us. And saying, the time is fulfilled. Now stop. Some of you wish that about my sermons often. So what does that mean? The time is fulfilled. What's it mean? We're coming to a close. It's done. It means sit down, preacher, right? Is the idea. The time is being fulfilled. It is coming to a close. We don't have to be scholars to know that. Look what it says. And the kingdom of God is what? It stopped. Does this sound like the same message we saw at the beginning of Matthew's gospel? Kingdom of God is at hand, yes. And the idea of Jesus preaching the kingdom talks about the end of time, correct? He's going to bring it all to a culmination. But look what it says after that. Repent and believe in the gospel. I have heard numerous preachers refer to this verse. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus was talking about. And because he said repent and believe the gospel, we should understand everything else going on in Matthew. It wasn't about an offer of the kingdom. Stop. Does the context tell you differently? It does. It does tell you differently. It's not hard to, to come with that, and it's been reinterpreted to this idea of repent and put your faith in Jesus so that you will be saved from hell when you die. That's not the goal here. In fact, here's an interesting thing. One commentator said, to believe the good news, commenting on this verse, okay, to believe the good news is to believe in Jesus. 
to believe in Jesus is to follow him. So he called his first disciples, and he still calls us today. So notice, he's taken the kingdom, and he's reinterpreted it to go to heaven when you die. And he's also removed the idea of faith, and he said, no, faith actually means follow. Do faith and follow mean the same thing? No. One is either you're convicted or you're persuaded that something is true. The other one means is that you are, act, you are, you are actively in pursuit of something. Does everybody see how there's a difference there? But notice, when we, when we start messing up this idea of the kingdom, we take justification and sanctification, and we try to zip them together. And it just doesn't work. Now, people have been ramming and cramming it for years. But all it does is create doubt and stagnancy in the church. Why is that? Because we're not even for sure if we're really going. So then all of a sudden you have churches that are serving out of guilt so that they're doing enough good things to prove to themselves that they've really come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because apart from the proof of themselves, they don't know. Where was the work done in salvation? The cross. That's where you look. Paul says, I came to preach Christ and him crucified why because there's where the work is and if the work is done and if you have believed if you have trusted in that it's a done deal now it's time to get on with life and learn what it is to live because you are accepted not to live to be accepted everybody understand that we're fully accepted in christ we now have this brand new life we are a new creation in christ to now live from that complete and unconditional acceptance good Good stuff, right? Man, it's like barbecue. You want to lick your fingers on that stuff. It's good. So now notice verse 15, the idea of repent and believe the gospel. Here's an interesting thing. <clears throat> One commentator said this. In Mark, the kingdom refers to a present spiritual kingdom rather than a future earthly one. He says, therefore, the expression refers to kingly rule, the reign, the dominion, the sovereignty of God, in the hearts of people. Now stop for a second. In verses 14 and 15, do you get an impression at all that the idea is that the kingdom of God is about God ruling and reigning in your heart? Is that the kingdom? See, I got news for you, commentator guy. It's not going to fit. The kingdom's way bigger than my heart. Nobody thinks that's funny? It's like literalism to the hill kind of thing, right? But think about it. That was a mercy laugh, I can tell from everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you. But this is commonly used over and over. If you've ever heard of Paul Washer, he is, he is huge in reform circles. He's, he's usually got a lot of hits on YouTube as far as his sermons and things. And he will actually use this Mark passage and say, see, this is talking about go to heaven when you die. If you compare it to everything else going on at the Gospels at that time in history, and you just look at the context of this verse, that's not what it means. So why are we having a hard time just accepting what the Bible says about itself? I think it's a big problem we need to be aware of. And here's the reason why. How many of you reading your Bible, you come across hard passages? Yes? <laughs> You're like, every day, preacher, right? And so what's our first reaction? What do we do? We grab a commentary. We get online. We type in the verse reference. Has anybody preached on this? We get on Blue Letter Bible. We use that program. We get on eSword and we download that program. Which, by the way, eSword's a great program. It's free if you ever want to download some good Bible study software. It's great. That might be the only thing you write down this entire sermon. That's fine. But it's a good program. But what, is, what do we do? I don't know what this means. And so, therefore, I'm going to go somewhere else and seek out somebody else's view of this so that I can understand what this means for myself. Number one, that is cheating the process huge. Because if anything, even though you didn't open an extra book, even though you didn't back up and read the context, even though you didn't sit down and try to formulate the thoughts with your pen in your hand yourself, you negated the Holy Spirit who wrote Scripture. I'm going to try to understand this, but I don't want the author to tell me anything. How many of you had Nancy Drew mysteries growing up? Who's the lady who wrote those? Anybody know? What's her name? Something like that? Can you imagine going through there and go, what in the world is Nancy doing here next to this fireplace? What is going on here? And you don't know. And the author says, hey, let me tell you what I was thinking here. And you go, no, I'm going to search online. Does that make any sense? The author was willing to help you. 
And you smacked away the hands of the author and you said, you know what, I think Joe Schmo, who's trying to keep his job over here at this publishing place, would be better to go. Everybody see how silly that is. Every single person who is a believer in Jesus Christ has the indwelling Holy Spirit. So not only do we have the power to live the Christian life, we have the author of the handbook for the Christian life ready to unfold to us the Christian life. This is why we see such things like Psalm 1, I meditate on his law day and night. Because Bible study like this so we don't get confused on the issue of the kingdom and try to equate it to salvation, it's hard work. Sometimes we need to stop studying the Bible and just meditate on the verse at hand and pray, Lord, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring an understanding to my mind. Show me where I need to go. Illuminate the text to my understanding. Now, side note and slight advertisement. You still have time to get in on the hermeneutics class because this is everything we talk about in that class. And I still got some books left over to give to people. Moving on here. Everybody turn to Luke 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Here's the reason why Luke 8 is important. Luke 8 is the parallel passage to the parable of the sower. This is Luke's account of the exact same event we've seen in Matthew 13 and spent a couple of weeks on. Luke 8, we're going to start actually in verse 10. Sorry, Mitch, I had 11 through 15, but we want to hit 10 because 10 gives us an important ingredient of why we need to understand what we're looking at. So if you don't mind to back it up one, that'd be fantastic. Luke chapter 8, verse 10, and he said, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Stop. Who is talking? Who are they talking to? Jesus is talking to who? The disciples. And we remember this from Matthew, right? What didn't we see where he kind of takes them aside or he, he talks to them later and he lets them know this hasn't been, this understanding has not been given to everybody else, but to you it's been given. You who have accepted me because you did so, you get further understanding, revelation. I'm giving it to you. The people who have rejected me, they don't get this. So we automatically understand what's going on there in the scene, and we can understand this. Now notice, it's been grant- to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables. Why? So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Familiar with everything we saw, right? It's just a, a concise version of it. Now, watch this, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those besides the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart that they will not believe and be saved. And all of a sudden we go, okay, throw on the brakes, preacher, because there it is. Believed and be saved. See what it is? Trust in Jesus and go to heaven when you die. Is that what it says? See, we're all nervous now. If I say the wrong thing, he'll tell me I'm wrong. Yes, I will. What does the context tell you? What's it about? The kingdom. It's the mysteries of the kingdom. He's given the interpretation to it, just like he did in Matthew. So when he sit here and says, the seed is the word of God, it's the word of what? The kingdom. It's not the word of salvation, how to go to heaven when you die. He is talking to these people about the kingdom and what this time is going to be like with people who are receptive of the kingdom. The problem is, is the words believe, and saved, right? That's the problem. And we sit there and we go, believe. Well, that's what's required to go to heaven when I die. Well, let me ask you a question. Are you believing Jesus for how you live your daily life? Should be, right? Well, not like I should, preacher. Don't everybody get all Eeyore Christian on me, okay? Yeah, we should be doing that. We believe him to be justified, but as we walk, we're not saved by keeping the law. We also walk by faith, right? We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. It's no difference. Both entail believing. Everybody see that? Now, the problem really, preacher, if you've got to boil it down, the problem is the word saved. Because that means go to heaven when you die. Does it always? No, context determines the meaning. Saved from what? When the devil comes in and steals away the word of the kingdom from people, what, is, what, are, what are they not able to be saved from? Does anybody know? See, we haven't really touched that yet, so there's the mystery. But is it talking about go to heaven when you die? The context doesn't point us in that direction. Okay, who's with me? Okay, who's asleep? Okay, who needs coffee? 
Okay. So make sure. Well, I didn't want to have to have Art get up and wheel it around and all that stuff. So what were you going to say, Corey? You were going to say something. Yes. He's talking about the, re- the reception of the message of the kingdom. That's the idea. Are they receptive? And notice, because the devil swoops in and takes it away, they can't be receptive. Everybody see that? Okay, now watch. Moving on here. Look what... Save, save, here, it's a good question. Is saved delivered? Saved can mean delivered or rescued. Those are totally legitimate things. Like, for instance, uh, oh, 2 Timothy 2, no, 1 Timothy 2, Pastor Steve knows, I'm sure, um, 15, but a, uh, but a woman will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and good deeds. Does that mean you can't go to heaven if you don't have kids? No. Obviously, the word saved means something different. We laugh at that. We think, oh, that's crazy. That's ludicrous. Yeah, it is. But notice, context determines the meaning. Does everybody see that how Jesus was shown to explain the parable of the sower in Matthew? This is the exact same event from a different point of view. Does everybody see this? Okay, so watch. Verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those that when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. Now stop. Last time we saw persecutions and afflictions, right? Notice what it says here. And in time of temptation, fall away. In fact, that word temptation is probably also best translated testing. When their faith in this matter is tested, they fail, is the idea. They don't hold fast. Notice what happens next, verse 14. The seed which fell among the thorns, right? The riches of of this age, uh, the cares of the world, for Matthew. The seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked by worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bearing no fruit to maturity. Everybody see that? So notice, we're getting a little bit more understanding. It's unfolding for us here. How about this last one? Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word and an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. In other words, they're faithful and they're steadfast based on what they've received. Now, just as in Matthew and just as in here, notice that there's only a 25% chance from what we see of people who are responding. Now, those percentages aren't exact, but notice he's talking about four different groups of people, how people respond to his preaching of this word of the kingdom. Now, wait till the end. We'll unfold the direction that Jesus is going with it, okay? Here's an interesting thing. The soils two and three. I want to read this quote to you from a commentator to see how he deals with it. He says, The superficial reception given to the word may be compared to those who believe Jesus only to be called children of the devil. Obviously, they did not go on to true, liberating faith. There is no such thing in Scripture as true, liberating faith. There is faith and there's unbelief. And you either believe or you don't. It's real simple. So notice, someone that tries to put go to heaven when you die and superimpose it on this idea is trying to qualify a true, genuine, deep faith rather than a flighty, flaky, disingenuous faith. It doesn't exist in the Bible. You don't have those distinctions. You have that someone is either convinced that something is true or they're not. They either trust it or they don't, right? Every single one of you are sitting in chairs. Do you trust them? obviously, right? Because, man, it sure would be funny if everybody felt this moment. I'd laugh. You wouldn't. I would. That's hilarious. You know, then God would probably strike me with lightning through the roof. It's okay. But notice, the whole idea here is the fact that faith is a conviction that something is true. We're not ever called to qualify it in Scripture. Another idea here is notice that the word constantly means the word of the kingdom. Everybody look at verse 15 real quick. Notice that we have some qualifiers here. They hold it fast. They persevere. They're steadfast in it. They're faithful. But what is the big one that always sticks out to us? They what? They bear fruit. So notice, those who understand the word of the kingdom, they will bear fruit. Why? Because there's something about what Jesus is teaching that changes the way a person conducts their existence. There's something about them that when they hold fast to this truth, flips them. 
and flips them hard, flips them in such a direction as to where they want to see fruit come out. Now, here's the thing. With the word being scattered as it was through the other, will persecution and affliction come? It will. Will time of testing come? Yeah. Will the cares of the world try to get in your way? Will money try to choke it out? Notice the idea is making it through all that junk and understanding the point that, no, what I need to be most concerned with is what Jesus is telling me about his coming kingdom. I will then bear fruit. Only one soil bears fruit. It's important for us to understand. So now, if it's not talking about the free gift, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world does understanding and fruit bearing have to do after Jesus' time? Okay? So everybody take your Bibles. Turn back to Matthew 3 real quick. And we're going to get a running start into this whole idea of understanding and fruit bearing. Everybody still with me? Have I bored everybody yet? Okay, not yet. (laughs) Jesus knows your heart. All right. Chapter 3 of Matthew, look at verse 2. Here's the message, right? John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What we've seen always, right? Same message that Jesus preaches in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and his audience is who? It's the Jews. Look down at verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. John's experiencing revival in his ministry. Now, why would they respond in such a way? If the message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, do you think that these Jews know what the kingdom is? Yeah, there's no explanation need to be given. Why? Because God's already taken 39 books to unfold what the kingdom is beforehand. This promise of the coming, literal, reign of Christ. The Messiah is coming. They don't know his name is Jesus at this point. But notice, the Messiah is going to come. A prophet is calling us to deal with our sin and to get it out of the way so that when he shows up, we can believe in him. That's the idea. So notice, they're all coming out. Verse 6, they're being baptized by him in the Jordan as they confess their sins. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the legalists, the religious legalists of their time, right? Coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, now watch this, therefore, now notice, he's talking to the religious legalists. Therefore, bear, what's it say? Fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Stop for a second. Does everybody see that bearing fruit is something different than repentance? And it's the fact that when repentance takes place, afterwards fruit should be born. Everybody see that? Okay, that's important to know. Because if we're talking about the importance of what it is to receive Jesus' message, which is about the kingdom, which is John the Baptist's message about the kingdom, and the idea is is that no matter how messed up you are in religious, religious legalism, you still need to come to a point of repenting and then bearing fruit that comes out of that repentance, that change of mind that takes place. Because now something different is going on. A different direction is taking place because you have been convinced here that something is different. Does anybody ever do anything without deciding to do so first? That would be weird, wouldn't it? After a while, you'd be like, hey, you've been in state hospital lately? I'd be like, no. But you'd want to take me there unless I've got a good reason that I am convinced that this should be doing it. I won't be doing it. So truth has got to take root. Unless Tom's cheekbone is at this point. That'd probably be the only good reason I'd do something like that. But he's shorter than me, so praise the Lord. Moving on. I got to get a jab in somewhere, right? Notice. Secondly, bearing fruit is in relation to what message? The kingdom. The kingdom. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And bearing fruit is in relationship to the kingdom. Everybody see that? Now Matthew 21. Turn over to Matthew 21. Everybody's fingers fired up and ready to go? We looked at this briefly last time. Take your attention there again shortly. This is the parable of the landowner who lends out his land for people to work. This is a picture of what God has done with Israel and that Israel has been unfaithful 
and taking care of the land and kills the prophets and the son that was sent to it. Okay? And so they even ask him, what do you think that they're going to do? Look at verse 41. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And then Jesus says to them, did you, ever, did you never read in the scriptures? And he's talking to, to Pharisees who know the scriptures inside and out, right? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it taken from this generation of Jews because of their rejection of Jesus Christ and given to another people who aren't necessarily bringing in the kingdom. It's the fact that they are bearing fruit as a testimony to the coming kingdom. So watch what it says here. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They understood the teaching. And the kingdom had been taken from them. You, Jews, will not bear the fruit of this kingdom. I've already got somebody else on deck to step up. Everybody see that? Okay, so important point. Remember, we're not saying anything that the scriptures do not say about this point. Let me read this quote for you. It's a good quote. The parable of the sower looks out ahead to God's activity during an entirely separate dispensation, following the removal of the kingdom from Israel and a new nation being brought forth to bear fruit. Israel, because of the nation's barren condition, was to be set aside for a dispensation, and throughout the dispensation, God would deal with a different nation with respect to fruit-bearing and the kingdom of the heavens. Everybody turn over to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, look at verse 26 here. <clears throat> this is good for what we, what we observe today. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, which Jeremy should have remembered today, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, now watch this, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now or until that day stop. Does that sound future to you? It does. Notice that. That day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice that he is speaking of the time when Jesus will celebrate what we celebrated today again with everybody is only at a future date when the kingdom comes. It anticipates the future, which what does that mean? The kingdom wasn't around at that time. Does everybody see that? Okay, great. Now, turn to Acts 1. Don't, don't cash out on me now. We are in the long stretch. Persevere until the end, steadfastness and faithfulness, right? Stick with itness. That's a fun Greek word. <clears throat> Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 3. Talking about the apostles and what Jesus did to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Alive, resurrection. After his suffering, crucifixion. By many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. Stop. Luke, out of all the things he could have documented that Jesus talked about to the eleven. In between the time of his resurrection and ascension, he had one teaching that he wanted to keep before them, and it was a teaching of the kingdom. What happens in Acts 2? The birth of the church. And were these men not serving as foundational points of getting the church off the ground? I mean, one of them, Peter, the one who stepped up and preached, and when he preached, 3,000 people got saved. That's a good church growth problem. Why would Jesus spend 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God if it wasn't still a relevant message? In fact, they get so hyped up about it. Look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, and I picture, right, jumping up and down, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
He says, it's not for you to know the time of Father Fix. Be my witnesses. That's what you're to do right now. What does that tell you? Kingdom's still future. There's something to do now because the kingdom is still future. How about this? Turn over to Acts 14 with me. This is the Apostle Paul's ministry. And the beautiful thing about the Apostle Paul's ministry is he did church planting right. He went, he went city to city. He preached the gospel. Some believed. A lot didn't. But he took those that believed. He got them started in a church. He discipled them up, spent time with them, equipped them, sent them on their way, went other places and did the same thing. And then when he came back around and made the rounds, he stopped at each church that he had previously planted and he strengthened them. He built them up. He encouraged them. He wanted to say, go, go, go. Don't lose sight. Keep going. Woo, right? Notice what goes on here, verse 21, chapter 14, 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Now watch this, verse 22. First, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Number two, they were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, notice the contents of their message and strengthening them and encouraging them to continue. Here it is. Look, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God an important message for the church? Yes, it is. In fact, if they're already disciples, they're already saved people. If this is a message that is used to strengthen and encourage them, get this, it says that the message of the kingdom has everything to do about our sanctification. It has everything to do about how you and I live our Christian lives in the form of discipleship. It is the motivating end and goal, the culmination of all history of which we are aiming for. And Paul totally understood this. Let's see where we are. What time we got? I'm going to pretend I can't read that clock. Acts 20. Acts 20. I can't see that clock. Acts 20. And again, this is all in your notes. Acts 20, 25. Paul spent more time with the church in Ephesus than he did anybody else. He spent three years there teaching them, training them up, and yet they are the church that is mentioned first in Revelation 2 from the Lord, and they received the rebuke, you have forgotten your first love. So very interesting to see that Paul spent all that time, but the problem wasn't that his teaching was messed up. The problem was they were not applying what they were taught, and it cost them in the end. Now, he is getting ready to say farewell to them. He will not see them again. He's going to Jerusalem. He will be persecuted. He will later on be beheaded for the faith. But look in verses 25 through 27. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the what? The kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. What did he spend three years teaching this people in Ephesus? He taught them about the kingdom. He taught them about the end point of their faith being the righteous, awesome rule of Jesus Christ on the earth. In fact, in verse 20, he says that he didn't shrink back from declaring to them anything that was profitable. And if you look down at verse 32, he says that he was teaching them in such a way as to build them up and to give them an inheritance among those who are sanctified. The idea of inheritance, if we remember and think back, is connected with the Old Testament language of what it is for the kingdom to come. It all fits together. Does everybody see this? Okay, last one. Here we go. Acts 28. The very last one of Acts. Acts 28. <clears throat> Paul is on house arrest now. He's on house arrest in Rome, and he has some local Jews that come to talk to him. They want to spend time with him. And so what does he do? Look at verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. That guy needs a clock, right? But notice the contents of his message. Number one, he's dealing with Jews. They don't know Jesus Christ. They have missed their Messiah. So he starts with the idea of the kingdom with lost Jews. Why is that? Because they have this massive background about this subject. They know about the coming of the Messiah. And then what does he do? He puts Jesus Christ forward as the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He is the Messiah. 
Everybody see how he has to do, how he has to work this with Jews that way? Let's talk about the kingdom. Now let's focus in, talk about the Messiah. Now let's talk about how you guys miss the Messiah, and let me tell you who the Messiah is. Everybody see that? He's dealing with lost Jews who have a detailed background of this history. Look what happens after that. Verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Does everybody see how persuade and believed are used as parallels there? Notice that. Believing is being persuaded of something. Being persuaded of something is believing that it's true. Some were persuaded, some were not. Now, notice after this, verse 25, and when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Notice, he's going to pull something Jewish on this, right? Saying, go to the people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Hold the phone. Where did we see that before? Didn't Jesus talk about that whenever the disciple says, why are you teaching this way, Jesus? How come you're speaking to these people like this and all these weird words and soils and plants and everything? What is going on? The reason why, I am, why it is is because I'm speaking to them truth and I'm speaking in such a way because they have denied me, it is judgment upon them. But because you have received me, it is blessing and further understanding and information for you. For the one who has will receive more. The one who thinks he has but doesn't, even what he has will be taken from him. Does everybody see this? Paul pulls from where Jesus pulled. Sounds like a smart plan. Verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Right? He's the apostle of the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Verse 31, Preaching what? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered if you have your notes look on the back page how in the world should we think about all of this with everything that we've seen you say good grief that's a lot of information aren't you glad you got notes you can either listen to it or read it right we just went through all of this stuff so that everybody would understand but here's what you do when you go through a bible study like this and again it's not exhaustive there's more work that needs to be done there's more about the kingdom than just what we touched upon the gospels we just don't have the time But here's some things that we learned. Notice the bullet points. First, the message of the kingdom involves bearing fruit, yes? Okay. One must understand in order to bear fruit, yes? Okay. Only one-fourth of those who hear the message of the kingdom will be the ones who bear fruit for the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, we don't know the percentages exactly, but notice that Jesus takes the time to divide it up into four different groups of people. The kingdom was forfeited by Israel, and another people would have the opportunity to produce the fruits, yes? Okay. The kingdom is a concept that carried over into the church, yes? The kingdom is a teaching that is directed towards believers who are disciples, yes? Strengthening and encouraging them. Holding fast, perseverance, and tribulation are all concepts that surround the word of the kingdom and the disciple bearing fruit, yes? Here's what's interesting. This concept of the kingdom equals up perfectly with what the New Testament teaches about our sanctification. You and I being saved from the power of sin daily in our lives when you believe in jesus christ you are saved from the penalty of sin all who have sinned deserve death yes now think about how serious that is how much have you sinned today already for you got here they better have enough donuts for me today right how envious how selfish are your heart why not give your donuts to your neighbor because i need them you would think that we had Coated crack cocaine on our donuts out there. Sometimes the way we get about some things. But here's the thing. Do we not sin? And do you not realize that even those slight sins that just get out there, they deserve for us to be executed at that moment. See, this is what makes the cross of Christ so valuable. And it cannot be glossed over, pushed away, put in a corner somewhere. He died so I could live. What? Yeah, because you can't stop wanting donuts. It sounds silly, doesn't it? But let's be honest, our hearts get evil about the silliest things. And sometimes we might sit here and put our hands on our head and go, good grief, 
why am I so predisposed to this mess? I'm so about me. Why is that? Aren't you thankful that it's the grace of God, undeserved, free gift, that says, here's my son. He did all the work for you. Believe him. Accept it. That's all it is. Thank God for that. But here's a beautiful thing about our father. Anybody that's a father wants the best for their kids. Now he wants to train us in a way that we ought to go. Why? So that we will reach the maximum of everything that we need to to glorify him. He only wants the best for his kids. So what has he done? Well, he's given us opportunities with the word, with prayer, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, with fellowship, with one another, in order to come to him and to slowly be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you this. Think about what keeps you from your Bible throughout the week. The worries of this world. Maybe persecution and affliction. Maybe it's failing testing that he's putting in your way where you just didn't make a decision that you knew God said that we should make that decision, but we didn't. But also wealth, money. Man, I was just too busy for Jesus. If you're too busy for Jesus, your priorities are wrong. Because if he is not the motivator behind those priorities, you are in sin, period. I'm too busy to pray. You're so busy, you better pray. Right? Because how in the world are you going to make it through everything that is demanded of us in this day and age if we don't have Holy Spirit supernatural help and God-given counsel to give us the answers? It's impossible. So what is this idea? He is conforming us to the image of Christ. And here's the secret. It's not trying harder. It's not doing better. It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not, I got to cut this thing and I got to do this and I'm just going to go sit on a pedestal somewhere 30 feet up in the air for three years and that way I'll get more holy because I'm abstaining from the world. No! I got enough sin going on here. I don't have to isolate myself. So what's the answer? I need more of Christ. I need more of Jesus. I need more Jesus. Well, I just get so depressed when I think about myself. Yeah, because you're a depressing person. And so am I. And if you've talked for me, talked to me for any amount of time, you're like, yeah, that guy's got problems. So how do I get those problems fixed? Jesus. More of him. More of him. Why? Because he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has saved you. He's forgiven your sin completely. He's given you eternal life as a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You just got to accept it. And guess what? When you undo the bow and open up to see the gift that he has given you, it is a brand new life. It is not a morphing of the old life. He is not trying to make a hot dog finally taste good. I hate hot dogs. So that's why I use that illustration. They're never going to taste good. He doesn't care how much ketchup you put on them. It's not enough. We're entirely brand new. Entirely brand new. If you're in Christ, you are a new, new creation. New. When you go to the store and you get something, you want it to be new when you get it out of the box. You don't want it to have some conspicuous fingerprints all over it. Then it's tainted, and you don't want it, and you didn't get its values worth. You see how that works? Jesus makes it all new. How do you live the Christian life? You trust him. What has he said? That's the truth. Trust him. That's it. That's all. So with the idea of the kingdom as a motivator out ahead, because it's going to come. It's going to come. Are you ready for it? Is your soil as such where you receive it and you're willing to hold fast to it and you're willing to persevere in light of his coming? I just want to serve him faithfully. Everybody see how that works? Yes? Okay. All of you are starting to fall asleep. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this time to look at your word and to see, Father, this understanding of the kingdom of God propels forward. The Father, it sits out ahead, and it is the goal of all history. The sheer fact that we are your children. 
what a wonderful privilege we have set before us to live a life completely different. We are new creations. If we're struggling with inadequacy today, self-image issues, maybe it's the way that we think, maybe it's that we have some sort of addiction, all these can be laid down because we have a new life. We are a new creation in Christ. It is not about what goes on in or around us. It's all about what Jesus has done for us and said about us. We are complete in Him. We are complete in Christ. Father, convince our hearts of that truth. It is true regardless of whether we believe it or not. So we say, God, please help our unbelief in this matter. We pray it in Jesus' name.